like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And when I get, get a chance, I like to watch the Discovery Channel. They've got this fellow called Survivor Guy. And they, they take him by helicopter and they drop him into some secluded mountain or some remote swamp with just a camera to film himself. And then they come back a week later to see if he survived. They did a special the other day on this guy called Grizzly Man. He lived and filmed grizzly bears in Alaska for 13 summers until they ate him. I guess I'm captivated by that kind of thing because it's a physical test. It's a physical challenge. My daughter has paid the entry fee to run a half marathon, 13.1 miles. I guess I paid for it, to be more accurate. But she is taking on a physical test, a, a physical challenge. What has been your greatest physical test? What has been your biggest physical challenge? You know, I was thinking back over my life, 50 years, and you'd think I'd have a few. I was going to tell you that I got a hole-in-one, but that's not really a challenge. That's luck. One time I did hitchhike a thousand miles in one day, and I did one time swim across the Mississippi River. Those were physical challenges. If I asked you what your physical challenge, your biggest physical challenge was, we might have people saying, well, you know, I have parachuted out of an airplane, or I have bungee jumped off a bridge, or, you know, I've, I've skied the black diamond slopes blindfolded, or, you know, I've, I've climbed a, a mountain peak. Those are all physical tests. Today I want you to consider a more important question. What has been your biggest spiritual test? What has been your biggest spiritual challenge? And while you're thinking about your answer to that question, we're going to reflect on an individual whose faith was tested to the max. We're going to consider an individual who climbed to the highest summit of faith. When we consider the hall of faith... This incident alone would have made him a unanimous inductee. We read about him in chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. Notice verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, we read about the details of this story in Genesis 22. We're going to look at that in a moment, but let me just summarize the story. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and offer him on Mount Moriah as a burnt offering. Now, that's a test. You know what Abraham did? He didn't run to tell Sarah. He didn't 
argue with God. He didn't question God. He obeyed by faith. And it says, he got up early the next morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men, took Isaac, split some wood for the burnt offering, and set out on his journey. And on the third day, he saw the place in the distance where they were going. And he told the two men to stay there with the donkey. And he said, I and Isaac will go worship and we'll return to you. And Abraham put the wood on Isaac's back. Abraham carried the fire and the knife and they walked up the mountain together. And Isaac turned to his dad and said, I see the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And when they got to the top of the mountain, Abraham built an altar. He arranged the wood on top. He bound Isaac and laid him on the altar. And then he took the knife and raised it to slay his son. And God said, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, don't do it. You've passed the test. Now I know that you fear me. And Abraham turned around and he saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And he took that ram and he offered it in the place of his son. And then he named the place Jehovah-Jireh. God will provide. Now I have noted five things about the test of faith. I've got them in your bulletin. And I want us to walk through those this morning. Number one is the reality of testing. You see, for Abraham, this was, was not a self-imposed test. He didn't sit down and say, uh, I, you know, I want to challenge my faith. What's the highest peak I could possibly climb? No. Abraham did not test himself. You say, well, who tested Abraham? Well, if you go to Genesis 22, it tells us in verse 1, it says, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. You say, well, does God do that very often? Yes. In fact, God tests all of us who walk by faith. If you're still in Hebrews 11, turn over just a few pages to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, God isn't likely to tell you to climb up on a mountain and sacrifice your son. If he does tell you that, come talk to me. God tests us through trials. What are trials? Trials are difficulties. Trials are obstacles. Trials are when you lose your job. Trials are when you get a diagnosis that's very severe. Those are trials in your life. And God uses those trials as tests of faith in the life of a believer. Turn to the next book, 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, 
that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Turn over another couple pages to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Testing is not strange. It's normal. And you see, the reality is that if you are a believer, God is going to test you. And then secondly, we see the reason for testing. Why does God test us? Well, let me spell out the question two ways. First of all, let me spell it out negatively. God's purpose in testing our faith is not so that we will fail. There's a great verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. That word tempted comes from the same Greek verb translated tested in Hebrews eleven seventeen. They're very similar words, but James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tell us there's a big difference in the two. Because in that passage, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, same verb, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. God tests us, but God never tempts us. God tests us to bring out the best. He never tempts us to bring out the worst. However, in every test, there is the potential for temptation when I give over to my lusts. And that's what happens when we fail. And on those occasions when we fail, we can't blame God because he provides the way of escape every time. And he promises us that he will not let us be tempted beyond what we're able. If you're in the third grade spiritually, you're only going to get third grade tests. If you're in the sixth grade, you're going to get sixth grade tests. If you're in graduate school spiritually, look out. Because you're going to get more major test. That's why I tell people, if you're going through big trials, God's got big plans for you. Because God sees the, the depth of your faith and wants to use you in significant ways. So the reason, negatively speaking, is God te God's tests are not designed for you to fail. Let me switch around to the positive side of that answer. God's purpose in testing is to demonstrate the reality of your faith and to make it even stronger. We already read the verse in James 1.3. Did you notice what it says? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Testing produces endurance. Testing makes my faith stronger in the future. Now, 20 years ago, I took a course in CPR. I've never had a refresher course. 
I've never had to use it to help save anybody's life. If you had a heart attack right now and stopped breathing, I might be able to resuscitate you, but I have no idea because I've never been tested. Now, the question I would ask you is, do you want me to help resuscitate you? Or would you rather have an EMT or a doctor or nurse step in who has been tested in that area? See, it's the same way with our faith. We have our faith, but the trials of life come along so that they test us, they prove us, they make us stronger, they give us endurance. Can I tell you something encouraging? The test of sacrificing Isaac was not the first test that Abraham faced. And most of the others he failed. When God first called Abraham to leave his family and his country, you know what? He only partially obeyed. God said, I want you to leave your country, leave your family. You know what he did? He went to Haran 50 miles away and he took his dad with him. And we read in Acts chapter 7 and verse 4 that it was only after his father died that he fully obeyed. What kind of grade would you give him on that test? I'd give him a C. When he finally got to Canaan, there was a family, or there was a famine. Without even asking God, he took off to Egypt and told Sarah to lie to Pharaoh telling him that he was his sister. How do you think he did on that test? I'd give him an F. Years later, in Genesis 16, when God delayed his promise of giving Abraham a son, Abraham took things into his own hands, and he took Hagar, Sarah's servant, and the result was the birth of Ishmael. How do you think he did in that test? I'd give him an F. Later in Genesis 20, Abram failed the test again by lying to Abimelech about Sarah being his sister rather than his wife. See, I find encouragement in that. It tells me that it wasn't as if Abraham started out strong in faith and never faltered. He had his ups and his downs just like you and I do. And it was only through those many times of testing, some victories, some failures, that Abraham grew in his faith. And you see, that is God's reason for testing. And then thirdly, we see the response to testing. The, the primary response is obedience. And I've listed in your bulletin five characteristics of Abraham's obedience. And for that, I want you to take your Bible and go back to Genesis chapter 22. And I want to pick these out of the passage. Genesis chapter 22. The first characteristic of Abraham's obedience was that it was calculated obedience. Usually when we're trying to get somebody to do something, we highlight the benefits and downplay the costs, don't we? Salespeople are great at that. They say, you can't pass this up, it's, it's 50% off. You can't afford not to buy it so cheap. It's only four easy payments. When did a payment get easy? 
So what I find here is that God wants Abraham to do something, but he doesn't follow that strategy. He makes sure that Abraham knows that what he's asking for is going to cost Abraham more than he thinks he can afford. He's letting Abraham know, this is not only going to break your bank, this is going to break your heart. Notice how God describes the cost in verse 2. And God said, take now your son. This is the son God promised. This is the son he waited 25 years to get from the first promise God made. Now he's got him, and now he, Abraham can say he's mine. God says, I want, to take, I want you to take your son, the one you call mine. And then he says, your only son. He's the only one Abraham has. And Abraham has had to wait so long to get this one, the likelihood is he's not going to get another one. And then he, then he reminds him, whom you love. He was the love of Abraham's life. It would have been easier if God had said, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice yourself. Or Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Sarah. But God says, no, I want you to sacrifice the love of your life right now, Isaac. And then if you'll notice, he names him Isaac. And what does Isaac mean? Isaac means laughter. I want you to sacrifice the one who is the source of laughter in your home. I want you to remember how depressed Sarah used to be until laughter came along. And ever since Isaac came along, she's been happy and her home has been happy and all those things. And so God says to Abraham, I want you to take the one you call mine, the one who is your only, the one you love like no other, the one who brings you laughter, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. You ever thought about what a burnt offering is? That means you're going to kill him, and then you're going to burn him up. That's what God asked Abraham to do with Isaac. Now let me ask you a question. How do you think Abraham felt when he got that message? You know, I think most of us think that if we had a face-to-face -face conversation with God, we would feel better afterwards. I think most of us come to our time of worship and we, we really measure how, how close we got to the Lord by how good we feel or how excited we are or how ecstatic we are. Abraham is one of the few individuals in the Bible who spoke to God as a friend. And how do you think he felt after this encounter? I think he felt disturbed, frightened, and sick to his stomach. You know, I think we've got to eliminate the idea that when we encounter God, we're going to get some kind of spiritual buzz every time. Sometimes we don't feel so good about what he says because sometimes when God meets you face to face, he lays out the cost that he wants from you and you've got to count the cost. Feelings kind of run supreme in our world today. It's almost like, you know, it really doesn't matter whether 
somebody's assertion is rational or even right as long as they feel it real strongly. And they go, well, if you really feel that way, then okay. And I'm afraid that perspective has crept into Christianity. Nothing wrong with feelings. God created us to be emotional beings. The problem arises when feelings are in control. The trouble is when our goosebumps become our guide. Then we're in trouble. Then we're living by feelings and not by faith. Let me tell you something. Faith surrenders to the will of God whether it feels good or not. Amen? Faith surrenders to the will of God, whether that feels good or not. And we see that in Abraham. It didn't feel good when God said, Abraham, I want you to take your only son and sacrifice him on the mountaintop. But Abraham considered who asked, and he counted the cost. His was calculated obedience. Secondly, it was complete obedience. You know, I can think of at least three obstacles that could have kept Abraham from complete obedience. One would have been rationalization. When we're asked to make a sacrifice we don't think we can afford, what do we do? We rationalize. We come up with excuses. Well, I can think of a lot of excuses that Abraham could have come up with. I mean, Abraham could have said, well, God, you know, this sounds like child sacrifice. And that's one of the characteristics of the pagan religion that you consider uh, to be wrong. Or he might have said, you know what? Murder is sin. I mean, to, to, to sacrifice my son is, is murder, and that's sin. So obviously God couldn't be asking me to murder my son. Or maybe he said to himself, you know, God, you, you said Isaac is the son through whom all your promises are going to come. How could God be asking me to sacrifice this one who is the key to all God's promises? You know, I, must, I must be hearing God wrong. I must, maybe I need to have my spiritual hearing looked at. I, God couldn't have told me that. I couldn't, it couldn't, he could have come up with all kinds of excuses, all kinds of rationalizations. But you know, Abraham doesn't do that. Another obstacle would have been procrastination. If you look in verses 1 and 2, God tells Abraham what to do. He doesn't give him a timetable. Now, when we have something tough to do and we don't have a deadline, what do we usually do? We drag our feet. Abraham could have stalled. He could have waited days, weeks, months. He could have said, you know what? It took... God 25 years to give me this son I'm going to take about 25 years to give him back but that's not what Abraham does look, look at verse 3 I love this verse it says so Abraham rose early in the morning he didn't say I'm going to wait till Isaac's next birthday and then I'll Sacrifice. I'm going to wait till we get through the hunting season together so we have that time together and then, no, it says the next morning and he didn't even sleep in. He got up extra early to carry out this obedient act to the Lord. 
Now, I think we need to emulate the way Abraham responded when God called him. God called his name twice in this chapter, in verse 1 and in verse 11, and both times Abraham's response was, here I am. Here I am. And then the third obstacle to complete obedience, I think, would be irritation. Abraham could have said, you know, I'm going to do this because God told me to do it, but I don't have to like it. He could have done it while he was gritting his teeth. He could have obeyed externally, but not internally. Have you ever done that? Well, I love what it says, or what Abraham says in verse 5. Notice, and Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship. Wow. He doesn't even call it service. He says, we're going to go worship. Abraham had complete obedience. No excuses, no delays, no hostility. And then third, we see that his obedience was consistent. Consistent. The first journey that God called Abraham to take from Mesopotamia to Canaan was well over a thousand miles and took several months. This journey to Mount Moriah was about 40 miles and it took three days. Which journey do you think was longer for Abraham? This one. You see, Abraham had to sustain his obedience for the duration of that trip. He had to start, he had to continue, and he had to finish. If there's one characteristic of the 21st century culture, it is that we're great starters. We start all kinds of things. We begin all kinds of things. You don't see a whole lot of people finishing things. Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, wrote this. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terribly difficult to sustain the interest. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. God is calling you and me to a lifetime of discipleship. He's calling us to worship by faith, walk by faith, work by faith, wait by faith, and eventually die in faith. And that takes consistent obedience. And then the fourth characteristic of Abraham's obedience was that it was confident obedience. 
You see, Abraham didn't go up on Mount Moriah with the expectation that God was going to stop him. I, I don't see him anticipating that, you know, going up every few steps and turning around looking to see whether God was going to stop him in this process. In fact, look at verse 10. It says, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And then after he slay, or, or killed his son, he was going to burn him up. That's what the wood and the fire were all about. You say, well, Dan, are you sure he was really intending to kill him? Well, that's what Hebrews eleven seventeen says. It says, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Past tense. He did it. In his heart, he had already committed himself to doing it before God stopped him. You say, well, what did Abraham think was going to happen? Well, look in Genesis chapter 22 at verse 5. Abraham says to the young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. He doesn't say, we'll worship and I'll return. He says, we will worship and we will return to you. You see, he was fully expecting that Isaac was going to walk back off that mountain with him. How? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19 says, Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. That's a lot of faith. Abraham said, now let's see. God promised to make a great nation out of Isaac. Isaac doesn't have any children, so Isaac is the key to this. God's telling me to kill him. Now that would create a big problem for me, but that's not a big problem for God because if God's telling me to kill him, then God must be planning to raise him from the dead and complete his promise. See, that is confident obedience. And then the fifth characteristic of Abraham's obedience <clears throat> is that it was contagious obedience. We don't really know exactly how old Isaac was in Genesis chapter 22 when this incident took place. But when you come to Genesis chapter 23 and verse 1, we're told that Sarah died at the age of 127. So in Genesis 23, 1, Isaac was 37 years old. There are some who speculate that maybe Isaac was 33 when this happened, which would be the same age as Jesus was at that time when he was sacrificed. But I think since Genesis 22.5 and 22.12 refer to him as a lad, a young boy, I think it's probably more correctly to assume that he's probably a teenager. He's probably somewhere between 13 and 17 years of age. And given that he's probably that age, he could have resisted Abraham's intentions all the way along. I mean, when, when Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood and by, bound Isaac and laid him on the altar, at any point he could, could have said, Dad, stop, I'm not going to let you do this to me. But you see, he had learned obedience from his father. In fact, I love the picture in, in Genesis 22, verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, Isaac 
says, you know, I see the fire, I see the wood, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb. That's not a real clear answer. We don't have a lamb, but God's going to provide. And notice what the end of verse 8 says, and I love this picture. Right after the question, so the two of them walked on together. Is your obedience contagious? You say, boy, I hope not, because I wouldn't want anybody to catch this. Well, then let me answer that question for you. Your obedience is contagious. Because your response to trials, your response to testing is being watched by your spouse, by your kids, by your friends, by your neighbors. The question is, what are they picking up from you? And then the fourth point is the rewards of testing. And I see three things that Abraham received that day. Number one, he got his son back. But I think more than that, he got a new relationship with his son. I'm kind of reading into it, but I kind of think that maybe when Abraham got his promised son, he became more enamored with his son than he did with his relationship with God. And maybe that's part of what this test was all about. He waited so long to get the son, and then he got the son, and he's all excited about the son, and God says, I want you to sacrifice your son because I want you to get your priorities right in your life. You see, Abraham came back down the mountain with Isaac, but he had a new relationship with Isaac. He viewed Isaac differently now because he had surrendered Isaac to the Lord. That was one of his rewards. Secondly, he got the approval of God. Look at chapter 22 and verse 12. God says, stops him, says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. That's like getting an A on the test. Here's the test, stop, you get an A. You know, the Bible records that God spoke directly to Abraham eight times beginning in Genesis 12 up until this point. This is the last time God spoke to Abraham that we know of. And this is kind of like Abraham's well done, good and faithful servant. He got his son back in a fresh way. He got the approval of God. And then thirdly, he got a deeper relationship with God. Verse 14 tells us that Abraham knew God in a new way. He knows him as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. I like the comment Charles Stanley makes about this. He says, we have no right to expect the provision of God if we are not in the place of his will. Abraham would not have known God as his provider if he had stayed home on this day. You see, it was only because Abraham was on Mount Moriah with a knife in his hand, surrendering all, laying it all on the altar, that he really came to know that God provides. And then the final point, the result of testing. 
And for that, come back to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 19 says, He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. That word type means a figure, a parable, a picture. Who is Isaac a picture of? Well, he's a picture of Jesus. That's really simple. Isaac was a promised son, promised years before his birth. So was Jesus. Promised throughout the Old Testament before he came. Isaac was a miracle child. His father was 100, his mother was 90, her womb was dead. He was a miracle baby. Well, Jesus was a miracle baby too. He was born of a virgin. In Genesis 22, 2, God calls Isaac your only son whom you love. Who is Jesus? God's only begotten son. The wood was put on Isaac's back and he carried it up Mount Moriah to the place of sacrifice. What's that a picture of? The cross was put on Jesus' back and he carried it up Mount Calvary. And after his planned sacrifice, Isaac came back down the mountain alive. After Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus came back alive. You see, the big difference is that what God would not let Abraham do, God did. There was no one to stop God's hand in sacrificing his son because there was no other sacrifice that could be provided in his place. There was no substitute sufficient to pay for our sins. I'm going to close today with an invitation and I want to spell it out to you. I'm going to have the praise team come back. But my invitation is this. If you're an unbeliever this morning, I want you to view this picture on Mount Moriah with Isaac on the altar and the knife in Abraham's hand. And if you are an unbeliever today, you are still on that altar. You are still under the judgment of God. And I would invite you today to come to God's sacrifice. The Lord Jesus, he's the ram caught in the thicket that wants to take your place and has already taken your place at Calvary if you will invite him into your life today.